going to be spending our time in Acts, but um, as Barry reminded us, uh, Isaiah in 55 gives us such a very wonderful, wonderful picture of the hope and promises um, that are ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, as we will see. So if you've got your Bibles open um, to Acts 13, we go. And uh, my outline you'll find really follows the contours of the passage and of Paul's, uh, of Paul's speech. So with that said, let, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak words of truth and words of life. Help us to hear them, to receive them and to love them. That it might lead us all the more to your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, back in the year, uh, well, might be before 2000, but around the year 2000, uh, the United Nations uh, issued a series of goals. They were called the Millennium Development Goals. And they were eight big kind of humanitarian things to achieve for nations to participate and to achieve by 2015. And they, they set some pretty um, big goals. Uh, there was eight of them. One of them was to eradicate extreme poverty and hunger, another to achieve universal primary education, another to improve maternal health, uh, to ensure environmental sustainability. Um, so they had this whole series of eight goals with little plans, right? They had this grand plan. Now, 2015, when they're going to meant to achieve these goals by, uh, has long come and long since come and gone. And, you know, while there has actually been um, uh, progress made in a number of these areas, uh, many of these goals have not been uh, perhaps achieved as, um, you know, the UN would have liked uh, because many nations haven't really participated. And how do you, like, are so many of these issues actually really difficult to actually resolve? Um, I think most of us, or at least, at least in the modern age, we have a sense that uh, the world needs fixing in some ways, right? The things are not as they should be. Um, now, that, now, the problem that people identify can be different, or you can identify lots of problems, such as warfare, uh, inequality of wealth, uh, environmental disaster, uh, and often the human solutions to these big problems can be completely conflicting. You know, for instance, wealth inequality. You might say, well, you know, capitalism is the answer, right? It is the, uh, the way of governing the economy that drives innovation and creates work. Right, it brings people up. But you, then others will say, well, actually, no, planned economies, right, kind of socialist economies, that is what is going to uh, lead to a greater equality. Um, for others, you know, technology is the saviour. We can fix our problems with technology, create new, you know, new pathways. For others, technology is the villain. It's the thing that causes more pollution. It's the thing that gives humans more ways to harm one another. Um, I often think of the promise of social media, uh, perhaps, that uh, the promise is that it's going to kind of bring us together, um, overcoming our physical barriers into one kind of digital unification. Whether that actually happens is another thing altogether. See, of course, the way you define these problems will point to the solutions, and often these problems and solutions are entangled kind of in human uh, politics and self-interest. You know, someone might want to... Um, uh, invest in environmental solutions, not only for the good of the environment, but because perhaps it um, makes them a pretty dollar as well. So how do you fix the world when we have all these issues and perhaps no clear way through? 
Well, God, we're told, in this passage has a plan. A plan to fix the world and his goals are far higher and more grandiose uh, than those we see in the millennium goals. Um, Indeed, they are ones that encompass all of history uh, and resolve the big cosmic issues of sin and death. Now, the context of this passage is that Paul is speaking to some fellow Jews and to uh, some interested Gentiles who are interested in studying uh, or understanding um, the Jewish God. And they're meeting on the Sabbath at the synagogue, which involves reading the law and the prophets, so the Old Testament. And providentially, they give Paul the mic and say, do you have anything to say on these words? And Paul seizes the opportunity and he gives the big picture of what God has been doing. And the question for us is, are we on board with what God is doing? So on your outline, really, it's all about salvation. This plan, uh, it's a, Paul says a lot of things, but it's really about salvation. And it can really be broken up, I think, in three ways. Salvation promised, salvation accomplished, and salvation uh, applied. It begins with a promise, doesn't it? Uh, that God calls a people his own. To fix the world, God calls out for himself a nation, we are told, Israel. God chooses the fathers, the patriarchs, so Abraham. And from there, who he makes, he makes the promise to him, he grows this nation person by person. We're told of these accounts in Genesis. And finally, when the time is right, right, the people are now a nation, but enslaved, God delivers them, brings the nation out of the wilderness or through the wilderness leads them to Canaan and conquers uh, the land uh, for them and gives them the land. You know, Paul's summary, this is 450 years of God's saving acts. God is tenderly bringing this nation, a chosen people, right? This is at the center of his saving plan. Now, the idea that a nation is special or chosen, as old as time, I think, uh, the ancient Greeks saw themselves as a kind of a, a the superior people because of their culture. The Romans saw themselves as a superior people because they were austere and honourable and, um, you know, anyone who stood up to them got mowed down and flattened. So how could they be superior, right? Nations throughout history have had this idea that they are special and chosen. Uh, the British at the height of the empire um, had this idea, Some, many of them had this idea that they were the new Israel. Um, you know, because look how grand we are. And indeed, in Australia, we don't speak of divine providence, but Australia is often referred to as the lucky country, a country that is blessed in many ways. But it's very clear, isn't it, from Paul's recount that God's choice of the people has nothing to do with their superiority. In fact, we are reminded uh, that God bears with them. We're reminded of their unfaithfulness. God bears with them like, you know, a little child in a car on a long drive. And the you know, parent has to deal with just the, the constant um, kind of irritation and annoyance. But obviously, uh, you know, it's a superfluous example. God's people are being incredibly unfaithful to him in that time. And yet, their complete lack of gratitude and their complete lack of love for him doesn't override his promises and covenant love. Uh, that's, that's really important to know um, and a really encouraging thing. Um, that God doesn't let our evil get in the way of what he is ultimately doing. But then we're told that God sends saviors. God gives his people many saviors, as 
Paul speaks of the leaders that God gets. He speaks of the judges. And then he reminds that Israel uh, desired a king. Uh, they desired a king for themselves and the kind of the model of a savior. Uh, that wasn't great. They wanted a king like the nations around them, a king who would kind of uh, rule by power. And so God says, sure. And as we're told, he gives them Saul. Uh, and Saul's an absolute disaster. And so God makes a choice of his own king. And this is the key point of Paul's Old Testament recount. Right? The promises to Israel are really end up being centered in the promise of God's king. He wants to get to David because it's interesting, isn't it? In verse 22, he says this, and this is where he kind of concludes his Old Testament recount. Uh, after removing Saul, he made God their king and God testified concerning him. I have found David, a son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And that is God's summary of David. Um, David often spoken of being a man after God's own heart. But we know that David had an up and down track record in some ways. Uh, he had some pretty big mistakes that he made, some pretty grave sins. And yet, on the whole, his life was one of repentance. And I think that's what sets him apart um, from, you know, above all the other kings. He entrusted himself to God in every way, including for his forgiveness. But why is it that Paul speaks so much about human kings? Why is this so critical, human leaders? Because before it's spoken about God doing stuff, and now suddenly Paul's talking about God sending humans. Why does God do that? Well, I think perhaps Paul was trying to get us to see that we're in need of a saviour. Particularly, we are in need of a mediator. Right? A mediator, what does a mediator do? They stand between two parties to bring them together. They represent the, you know, the people to God and God to the people. Well, that's what they're supposed to do. Unfortunately, no Israel, you know, no leader of Israel, judge or king, could do this, right? For one thing, they all died. So even your most faithful one, you're going to lose them at some point. But even the most faithful leaders were not ultimately able and worthy to overcome the fundamental problem of sin and of death. And I, I believe, you know, our world to a large extent, we acknowledge that evil and our mortality are big problems. How do we resolve them? Well, when it comes to evil, um, uh, I guess to kind of, we, we might look for moral improvement. How do we do that? Well, you know, governments will think of, well, if it's education, that will do it. Or perhaps it's having a good system of government. Or perhaps technology will help bring people together. Or wealth. If we are, you know, all prosperous, then we are going to do more good. Unfortunately, these things don't change the human heart, uh, which cannot just be simply um, changed by external means, right? For technology, it can give us new ways to love and serve, but also new ways to harm. But then we also have the great problem of death that governments will try and overcome, or we try to overcome. Um, you know, stay off death as long as you can, eat healthy. Um, if we make our people more prosperous, if we have technology, you know, to give us bionic limbs, or maybe one day to upload our consciousness to a computer? Is that how we resolve the problem of death? The problem of human sin and death, it kind of stares us in the face. It's very, very inconvenient. But what can we do about it? 
And you'd think that Paul's list, you know, hearers, they're getting this recount of things they already know, right? These are the things they know, right? And they think they've been waiting for God to fulfill his promises for a long time. They might be doubting, well, how is he going to do it? You know, how is God going to renew Israel? How is he going to bring his king? And Paul tells them the good news, which is, hey, guess what? It's already happened. God's already done it. I imagine that might have been a surprise to them, you know? Oh, like this has happened in your lifetime. That salvation has been accomplished by Christ. And Paul speaks of a message of salvation, verse 26. He calls it the good news, verse 32. Another word for good news, of course, is gospel. Paul has good news to share. And it all centers on Jesus. Verse 23. From this man's, uh, that is David's descendants, God brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus as he promised. Jesus is the one who ticks every box, every hope of Israel. All God's promises are yes in him. We're told John the Baptist, who the, the audience, they likely knew more about John the Baptist at this point than Jesus. They're saying John the Baptist, you know, he was preparing the way for Jesus. And he was preparing particularly you for the forgiveness of sins. And Paul speaks of the two things that his audience needs to know and we need to know about how all of this is accomplished, right? How is the solution, um, how is it met? First, Christ's death, verse 26 to 31. Paul fixates on Jesus' unjust suffering at human hands. You know, the promised king. He demonstrates that in his life and yet he is not recognised by the religious leaders. An unjust conspiracy forms and he is publicly condemned, scorned and given a death that for Romans was considered the most shameful of all. That uh, you were the scum of the earth if you received this death. And it was considered by Jews to be one that you are under God's curse. Right? It comes from the law. To hang, under, to hang on God's tree. To hang on a tree is to be under God's curse. And this kind of speaks to the human pattern of faithlessness. Now, what could be more faithless than rejecting God himself and crucifying him? You might wonder, well, the people would have wondered, how on earth is this a message of salvation? How on earth at all? This is a message of defeat, not salvation. But of course, you might have noticed the clues interspersed in Paul's speech that Humans' intentions are not God's intentions. In verse 27, in condemning him, they fulfilled the very words of the prophet. God accomplishes his plan through this evil somehow. And uh, Barry drew our attention before to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, where the righteous one bears the guilt of many. And through his sacrifice, his undeserved suffering, he is able to save them. And so the death of Jesus, as God speaks to it, it is so much more than the death of a good man. And we, we know this. But it is also the death is a, um, it's a, the expression of love, isn't it? Sometimes the atonement, that is God's death for us, it's, it's described in such a way that it almost seems like God is a tyrant, right? The father is angry at the son and the son is the, you know, kind of unwilling victim who is punished for us. 
But that's not how the Bible speaks of it. The Bible speaks of it that Jesus came to save willingly because of his love. He goes to his death. His love which matches the Father's love. He stands in the place of the guilty. The unrighteous bears, sorry, the righteous bears what the unrighteous deserves. And that is the only way that sin can be dealt with. That is the only way. He is the mediator. God had prepared other mediators before, but he is the true mediator that restores us to a right understanding with God. And so the cross sits at the center of God's grand plan to save. But then we have the second pillar, don't we? The victory of the resurrection. Verse 32, we tell you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors has been fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. The resurrection is essential. You can't, have, you can't really have the cross without it. Right? The, the, the resurrection is not just a little happy afterthought. It's the moment of victory. It is the moment when the great battle is turned. The declaration that Jesus is all that God said he was and that he has done all that God has sent him to do. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There is no good news at all. No sin and death have won if Jesus stays dead. Paul demonstrates this as he gives a series of uh, quotations from the psalm, doesn't he? Uh, so a series of quotations from the Old Testament. He speaks of Psalm 2, which talks about God putting his son on the throne. Uh, he speaks of the blessings from Isaiah, that passage we had read out. These promised blessings being given to David. And finally, we have the Psalm 16, which speaks of God's king not seeing decay. And all of these things can only be true of Jesus if he does not remain dead, if he, if he is resurrected. Only then can he be the eternal king. And verse 26 tells us, and Paul has to make this clear to them, that these promises, though they were written by David, and in some ways about David, they are not ultimately fulfilled in David or to David, right? Because David dies. David goes to the grave. His body decomposes, right? No, he's left. He's nothing. Only Jesus can fulfill what we have here. And so the death and resurrection of Christ, it sits at the heart of the gospel, of course, not as nice stories, not as metaphors on how to live, but as historical fact. And Paul draws that to our attention again and again, that these were witnessed these were events that you cannot just ignore. And Paul then goes to tell his audience and us that there's a payoff to all this. There is something that comes out of this that really matters for us. These events 2,000 years ago have the greatest bearing on us. And he speaks of salvation being applied. Verse 38 and 39. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus... The forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from sin. A justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. I wonder why, of all the things that Paul could have said about salvation, he goes here, he goes to forgiveness and justification. And he could have spoken about eternal life, adoption by God, moral transformation. Now, he speaks of these other things elsewhere. But first and foremost, as a matter of priority, speaks of the forgiveness of sins. I think those who had been reading God's law and hearing the prophets 
They knew that sin and death were a problem, but they couldn't understand how it would be fixed for them. Right? They had the map, but they didn't have the key. Well, now they have the key. The mediator, Jesus Christ. The one who offers us forgiveness and provides a justification, which is a right standing before God. And as Paul says, this can't be earned. Right? In this case, he's speaking about the law of Moses. The law could diagnose sin, but it could not ultimately save you from it because humanity could not live up to it. I think one of the challenges of the modern age uh, is our failure to understand the vertical dimension of sin. Um, I think people largely understand that they are accountable to other people horizontally, right? The way they treat other people. But it's the vertical thing. It's my relationship to God. How do I navigate that? And is that really so bad? To which the scriptures say, yes, you need forgiveness. That is the first and fundamental thing that needs to be addressed. And the whole question of eternal life stands on, well, it stands really on a matter of trust, doesn't it? It's open to any Jew or Gentile to believe. And this is the thing that Paul says. You know, the, the question is this. Do you trust Christ? Do you believe the good news in what he has done? That's at the heart of salvation. It's a matter of trust, of trusting another. Um, and that is, well, that's simple, isn't it? Not too hard. You can trust someone to do something else for you. That's very difficult. See, when it comes to small things, we might trust you know, someone. We trust them on the basis of their capability as well as the degree of the problem. <laughs> Right? I trust my mechanic that he's going to fix my car and not cut my brakes so I have an accident later. Or, you know, I receive an email from um, an unknown address saying that I've won a million dollars. I'm probably not going to trust that person. But when it's such a, a big thing, eternal life, it doesn't really get bigger than that. The stakes don't really get bigger than that. And Paul's saying you need to trust that Jesus has done that for you. That's a lot to stake your eternal destiny upon. You want to be sure. Maybe that's part of the reason that we like to be you know, self-justifiers. We want to address the problem ourselves because then it's in our control. And we might you know, find ways to say, well, I trust in Jesus, but I'm also going to do my bit for God and then that'll get me over the line. Or we might just try and not really go that way at all, but say, well, all right, I've got my, kind of my trust in Jesus, but... Just in case, I'm going to live my life my way, right? And have my own little mini salvation of, you know, whatever it is I desire and love. So maybe that's wealth. Maybe that's experiences, right? The things that I want to do. Sometimes as we walk in the Christian faith, the challenge can be that we hear these words of promise, but maybe our eyes tell us something else. We see our own sin in the world. We, sorry, we see our own sin. We see misfortune and suffering. And we can find it hard to see and understand our place in God's plan. How is it all really going to work out for us? Maybe these are just words we might even think. But it's important to remember the one who speaks these words of promise. Because God's words are not like our words. I'm going to read out some, of, um, some words from Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer. And he preached on this very passage uh, a year or two before he died. And I say he, he knew a thing or two about 
putting one's hope and trust in, in Christ. And he says this. He says, cling tightly to the word, even contrary to all your feelings and senses, so that you do not doubt it. It is as certain as you heard. For the one who says this is not a mere human being, but the one who created heaven and earth and everything in it from nothing. And ever since he rules and sustains it. What were you and I and everyone else who lives now a hundred years ago other than pure nothingness? Through what or from what did everything that was not come to be? He spoke and that which was not came to be and it stood firm. Therefore, since it is called God's word, it is an entirely different thing to a person's word. So now let it be or let it come. Unrest, terror of sin, death, of hell, death or hell, grave and decay. And let whatever may happen to you happen. But... You just clasp tightly to the word in your heart because Christ sent you a sermon of salvation that is redemption and victory over everything. And he wants you to believe it. Will he, as your God and your creator, will he leave you oppressed? For what can stand against him? Death, the devil, all creation? No. Friends, I hope you see that Christ accomplishes the sure hope of being reconciled to God. That we might be brought into the promised Israel, who's renewed people. And that we have him as our good king to lead us and to save us. So let us trust him. And I remember this is, was so important for me when I became a Christian on that road. I was at a youth camp and I just had a youth leader. He said, Bible study. I still remember it. Um, it was just a, almost a silly little thing he said, but he said, you know, if you trust in Jesus, right, then you're 10 out of 10 with God. Sometimes you're going to do good things for God, sometimes you're going to do stupid things, but you're 10 out of 10 with God because of Jesus. I think that is entirely right. That's entirely what we need to remember and remind ourselves of and trust in. So to conclude, are you on board with God's plan? God has promised and achieved and provides salvation for us in Christ. Our mighty king. While life just seems to twist and turn and throw just unexpected things at us all the time, um, really, these are little things compared to the big thing that God has done. And so we know he's done the big thing, and that is under control. So then we can trust him with everything else. He really has addressed sin and death. He is the resurrected one. We need to hope in that. And we just get one final warning, don't we, that Paul gives. He quotes from Habakkuk, uh, which in context was about people not believing that God would judge his people using the Babylonians. But then God actually did do that. And Paul's saying, don't be the kind of person who fails to see what God has put right before you in Christ. The one that Paul has been speaking about. And it's like we're standing, I guess, at the train station right you've got the doors open you've got the screen there and the screen tells you where you're going um, and when it's going to leave and you know but what you have to do is you have to you have to step on you have to trust uh, the train is going where it's what it's showing uh, and put your hope in it and get on the train and you know in many ways holding fast to Jesus is like that it is trusting to him both this day and every day so let's Closing prayer.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good king, a mighty king, and you save us, that you are our saviour, that you came to die for our sins and that you rose to life for our justification. And thank you that we can just know your son and know his love and praise and follow him. Thank you that this is, really is good news for us. It really is good news for our world. So please help us to trust in it and to be speaking that good news to each other, to be speaking that good news um, to those who do not yet know that hope. And Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would just be reminding us above all things that what Jesus has done for us um, has fulfilled all your plans and purposes. And so when we are liable to doubt or to fear or to be tempted, please help us to just to see him and to trust in him, our great Saviour. In his name we pray. Amen.